Hi everyone, and welcome to Happy Paws, presented by FearFreeHappyHomes.com. Happy Paws is a podcast by pet lovers, for pet lovers. We take a scientific and evidence-backed approach to helping you understand your pet on a deeper level. On this episode, we're excited to be joined by Dr. Zazie Todd, companion animal psychologist and the author of Wag and Purr, The Science of Making Your Dog and Cat Happy. She joins us to discuss some of the hidden details of cat behavior and how you can help your cat live their best life. Zazie, I am absolutely thrilled to have you here today to talk all about cats. And you are the person that I look to as really the ultimate expert in animals and in the science behind animals and why they do what they do and in some of the feelings that they have. And I have just been digging into both of your books, both Wag and Purr. And today we're talking all about cats. And I can tell you, I could probably read your book probably 10 times over and I will still learn something new. There's just so much information in there. It's incredible. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to chat with you because I love everything that you do and I love everything that Fear Free does too. So I'm thrilled. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Well, this is absolutely just such a joy. And I have been reading your book over the whole last week and over the weekend. And, you know, it's one of those that I, I feel like every single time I pick it up, I am just highlighting new stuff and just finding all these cool studies. And I know we're going to dig into cats, but I'd love to just start off on just the the general awareness of the emotions of animals and how that has changed in the past decades, because you really go into that in such a brilliant way. Like, do you mind touching on that a little bit? No, and it's changed so much, hasn't it? And yet at the same time, it's hard for us as animal lovers to believe that people used to say that animals did not experience emotions, that that was purely a human thing. And yet for such a long time, that's what scientists believed. Um, And so that's something that's changed, not just for dogs and cats, but all kinds of animals. And we saw the Cambridge Declaration of Consciousness in 2012, which said that many animals are sentient beings. And I think there are still disagreements about exactly what consciousness means. We We don't know for sure and about what sentience means, but it means that animals can perceive their environment and they can respond to it. And they have much more awareness and cognitive abilities than we used to think. And I think for us as animal lovers, like we look at our dog and I look at my cats and I think, I'm sure they experience emotions. And I've been sure of this for a long, long time, but to actually prove things scientifically is quite different. And then once you know that, it really changes how you interact with them because all of a sudden, instead of just thinking we have to prevent cruelty to animals, we're also thinking that we know they can have positive experiences. We, they can be happy. We may not know exactly what emotion they're able to apply, but we know that we need to give them positive experiences as well. So Zazie, one thing that I found really fascinating in your book was the ability of even fish to be able to feel pain. And, you know, such a a basic type of of feeling, but I think that there still are people today that, and I've I've talked with this uh, to people about that fish actually can experience pain and they will kind of argue with me that, oh, no, they can't, no, they can't. Can you explain a little bit about some of the research that you found there? Yes, and that's one of those things that, again, people have believed for a long time and it shocks a lot of people to find that fish can feel pain, especially if they're people like me. I do eat fish sometimes. And so that gave me pause for thought. Um, But one of the studies that I I mentioned in the book is about um, fish in a tank, trout, and 
they will avoid something that's new. So the, what the scientists used as something that was brand new that the fish would never have seen before was a Lego brick. And they dropped a Lego brick into the tank and the fish would avoid it because it's completely novel to them, so they're a bit nervous. But then they did something that they thought might cause the fish pain if they felt pain, so they injected them with something. Um, and as a result of that, the fish stopped avoiding the Lego bricks. So it seems to be as if they were in so much pain, they couldn't behave in their normal ways. Now, that in itself doesn't prove that they experienced pain. So what they did next was to see what happens if they injected the painful thing and if they also injected a kind of anesthetic, like a to something that would remove the pain effects. And when they did both of those injections, then the fish would go back to avoiding the Lego brick again. So that's one of the things that makes us realize that actually fish experience a lot more than we used to think. And they do seem to feel pain, yes. Um, so, but I mean, I'm fairly old. So when I was young and when I was studying psychology for the first time, there were still people who said that babies didn't experience pain, that thought that human babies didn't experience pain. And again, that's something that has changed. We know that they do. So there's been this huge, huge change over many decades in how we think about all kinds of animals. And it has so many implications. I, I love that part, how you're talking about just how that, that has changed so much and how we view human infants. And I know my dad, Dr. Marty Becker, a veterinarian, he talks about how when he was in vet school, they learned that pets don't experience pain. And even if they do, it's sometimes good because it's going to make the pet uh, like be slower to move. And so after surgery, since you don't want them moving, that maybe it's a good thing if they do have it. But, you know, now that has changed so much because, you know, the, I mean, I know we can talk a lot about that from your book, like where stress just impacts animals in so many ways and so many negative ways. And so that stress of having that, that pain and being uncomfortable and, you know, pets, absolutely. It just, as you showed there, like fish can feel pain and, you know, absolutely our dogs and cats feel pain. So it's just awesome now where pain management is a huge part of veterinary medicine and a huge aspect of fear-free because if a pet is experiencing pain, it's really hard for them to be able to experience those positives because they are in that really distracted high stress state where it's just, you know, that's like all consuming almost for them. Yes, and I think that's one of the wonderful things about Fear Free, really. And I think about the first time, I'm not a vet, but the first time one of my pets had had something that was potentially painful at the vet and the vet actually offered painkillers to come home with, I was like, oh, thank goodness, this is such a great idea. Why didn't people do this before? You yes. know? And I think it makes such a difference and it makes such a difference to, or for my cats, for example, after dental work it seemed to make such a difference to how they behaved afterwards like they seemed so much more comfortable so much more like themselves and it's such a big difference one thing that I really liked in Purr was how you go into the feline grimace scale and how cats can actually express feelings of pain by the way that their face may look or the way that their whiskers are lying or how their ears are looking can you explain a little bit bit about the feline grimace scale and how people maybe can use little aspects of that on their own to see some signs of pain in their cat that they may just be overlooking and not even realize that their cat is experiencing that kind of discomfort. Yeah, so the idea behind it is that if a cat is in pain, there are going to be changes in their facial expression. And so the Grimace scale was developed by scientists in order to see what those changes were so that 
Ordinary people and vets can use it to identify when an animal is in pain because it can be quite hard, for, especially for us as pet guardians, to, to spot those signs. And you can actually look it up online these days. Um, I can't remember the URL. I think it's felangrimascale.com or something like that. You can look it up. It's well worth looking up because it has pictures and it will show you the changes in the cat's face. So even though cats have furry faces and they have lots of markings on their face, it's still possible to look at their face and see signs, for example, in changes in the whisker position or the, how the mouth is being held. And when you look at compare your cat to the Grimmer scale, you might actually be able to notice that there are signs of pain there. And I think it really helps because they can't tell us that they're in pain. And when we look at their behavior, cats are very, very good at hiding when they're not feeling so good. And we might spot a few things, like we might notice that an older cat is not so keen to jump up on things anymore. Or we might notice that an older cat, when they're jumping off something, that they're putting a paw down to help them down instead of just jumping off from the full height. But those are things that we tend actually not to notice very much, or we might not notice them for ages. And the feline grimmer scale gives you something that you can actually look at and you can see this is what a cat looks like when they're in pain. Another thing that you go into that, that really follows up on that is how a lot of times when there are changes in a cat's behavior or in their movement, how people may just chalk it up to old age. Why is that not a good thing to do? Yeah, and I think that's very common. And I have a, a whole chapter in Purr about cats who are seniors or have special needs because often people do put things down to old age, but there may actually be an underlying medical issue behind them. And so then you, if you go to your vet, you may be able to resolve it and your cat will be able to have a much more comfortable and happier life. For example, if they have arthritis as they're getting older, that could be one thing that's affecting them. And there are all kinds of things that tend to affect cats more as they get older. And so it's important if you see a sudden change in your cat's behavior to go to your vet. And I think, unfortunately, sometimes people don't even just put it down to old age, but sometimes they will say, oh, the cat is being spiteful or the cat hates me or something like that. And they will blame the cat for this behavior. And that can also happen sometimes if a cat starts toileting outside the litter box as well. People often think this is the cat's fault. The cat is being mean to me for some reason. And unfortunately, it's not the cat being mean to you. Um, and it's very, very important in those cases to actually go and, and see your vet and see if there is a medical issue. And I think one of the things we see now is that there's a much better understanding of the relationship between behavior issues and potential medical issues and pain, which we didn't used to have. Um, I think we need to know a lot more, um, but it, it really helps to know that you should go and see your vet and get checked out first. Oh, absolutely. I think that's so important really for any behavior issue with any animal. It's it's very important because a lot of times behavior changes, that's the first sign of of an illness or some, some underlying medical problem that's going on. So I really like the, that you highlight that. Another thing that you highlight is the importance of a cat's environment and how a lot of behavior issues that cats experience can come down to perhaps them not having the best environment and, and, you know, not, not even just in terms of, you know, I, I like how you start off with the five freedoms. So that's kind of the, the initial thoughts on some of the, the welfare uh, charges that we have today and ways that we really protect our cat's well-being. But 
what's gone beyond that, as you've mentioned, is it, it went from like kind of more of like like with the the five freedoms, I think only one of them is is a do, and the rest are like kind of don'ts. Like, okay, don't do this. You know, the freedom from from like hunger and thirst, freedom from these different things. And what we've come more to now is like also adding in those positives, so more of the good in that pet's life, and how that's really uh, really going to better that pet's life. And so, one thing that you you talk about are the five pillars of of like a cat's life and in their, their home. Can you explain more of that and how that actually can be beneficial for a cat and for their behavior if we do it in the right way? Yes. So we know that unfortunately the number one welfare issue for pet cats is behavior issues caused by a poor home environment. And as you mentioned, we have several frameworks that we can think about this in terms of. So there's the five freedoms, there's the new model of the five domains, which looks more at positive experiences as well as preventing harm. And then we have the five pillars. So one of the five pillars is a safe space. And many, many cats don't actually have a safe space where they can go, where they can chill out and relax or hide and be without someone coming to get them out of it. So for cats, a safe space is going to be just the right size for them to hide in if they want to hide. And it could be high up because we know that cats like to sit up high and perch and survey the world. But it could also be, for example, under your bed or in a cardboard box. This is one of the reasons cats like cardboard boxes so much. Um, or the top of a cat condo. And it will be a space where they can go if they're stressed by something. They can go there and they can feel safe. And it's very, very important that we let them be there and be safe there and that we don't go and force them out, for example, to meet someone new who's just come to the house. Um, another one of the five pillars is that they should have multiple and separated key environmental resources. So their resources is their food, their water, their litter box, their toys, and so on. Anything that's important to them, their nice cat bed. And this is especially important if you have multiple cats in the home or if you have a cat and a dog in the home, because your cat should not have to compete with anyone else, cat or dog, to get access to those resources. So they need to be all nicely spread out around the home. And multiples. So for example, if your litter box is in the bathroom, but someone happens to be using the bathroom, the cat needs to be able to go somewhere else if they need to go at that moment. Um, so they need opportunities for play and predatory behavior as well. That's another one. They need positive and consistent interactions with us. And then they also need an environment that reflects the cat's sense of smell. And those are the five pillars. And I think it's very rare that someone is actually providing all of those things. And we can go into some of the others in more detail if you want to. But it really helps the cat if their environment is set up right for them. Because if you know what to provide for them, they feel much more comfortable. They can use their environment in the way that a cat wants to use their environment. You know, they're going to be happier. They're going to be less likely to have behavior issues. And they're going to have a better relationship with you as well. So it's so, so important to know about these things and to do these things. So when you talk about having multiple resources, you have different parts in the book where you talk about a multiple cat home or, or multiple pet home, as you mentioned, with having dogs there. And sometimes there can be like little subtle signs that you mentioned of a cat perhaps blocking another cat's access to a resource. Can you explain more about that? Yes. So often people will notice their cats aren't getting along so well if they're all out fighting, but they're not so aware of some of the more subtle signs you can have. So a cat sometimes may block another cat in the home simply by sitting there or lying there in the doorway or on one of the stairs. And then it's very, very difficult for the other cat to actually get past them or up the stairs. Um, I mean, 
maybe they'll take a flying leap over them in some households that that will happen but in many cases the other cat will actually be completely blocked and someone looking at it will just think oh the cat's just picked this spot to lie and they won't realize the effect that it's having on the other cat in the home that they can't actually easily come and get past so that's that's one of the more subtle signs to look out for and you know your cats are getting on well if they choose to spend time close to each other. So if they're choosing to spend time within about a meter of each other, not necessarily cuddling together, but it's always lovely when you get two cats that cuddle together. That's so, so sweet. But if they're choosing to spend time together, you know that they're good friends. Um, but so many people expect their cats to be forced together, like they'll put the two food bowls down next to each other, when actually your cats would prefer to eat in different spaces, maybe even in different rooms. Um, and so when you have situations like that, that's when your cats are less likely to get along with each other as well. I also really liked how you talk in the book about when you are introducing cats to each other, a lot of times like the common thought, at least back in the day was to do things like rubbing a towel on one cat and then rubbing the towel on the other cat. And you talk a lot about choice and giving cats control over that type of interaction and that type of introduction. Can you explain more on that? Yeah, it's so important to give cats a choice. And the thing is, if two cats don't know each other and you take something that smells of one cat and you rub it on the other cat, that may actually be a really unpleasant experience for them because they don't know this cat yet. They may hate it. And that is potentially setting you up actually for a bad introduction when they actually meet. So the idea of taking something of the cat's, one cat scent to show to the other, that's a good idea. But the, the idea is that you give the cat a choice and you don't force them to interact with it. So you might take a bed or a blanket that the cat has lied on and put it in a room with the other cat before they've ever actually met. And you might even also put some treats on that so that there's something to help make a positive association. But you give the cat a choice of when they want to come up to it, if they want to come up to it, and you wait and see how they're doing. And you wait until you know that they're quite comfortable coming up to it before you go any further steps in the plan. And I think people probably think it will go faster if you force them, like if you force the scent on them. But um, it doesn't work that way. Actually, the slower you go, the faster it is in the long run. And the thing is that cats who get on with each other, they do swap scent. They rub their head on each other. Sometimes they rub their whole bodies together or they wrap their tails together. And we think that they're sharing scent when they do that, building a group scent. But we can't force that process. We have to let them be the ones to make that. So it's really important to give them choice and control over that. I really like how you go into feral cat communities and how cats interact and uh, I may say this term wrong, but it's a, a matrilineal society is that, or, or a type of relationship where it's it's more based upon like the mother cats. And can, can you explain some about that and how that can you explain a little bit more about that and how feral cats interactions may actually be viewed in the way that our cats are like even within the home? Because you had some really good examples in there that I thought were just so great for helping us to better understand our cats. Yeah, there's some really lovely research on how feral cats interact with each other. And it can tell us quite a bit about how cats may behave in a multi-cat home. And one of the things that I find so fascinating about cats is that some cats like to be the only cat. They don't like to have other cats around. And other cats are very, very social. And so in some of the feral cat 
colonies, um, we find that it is a, I say matrilineal because I've got an English accent, but you pronounced it perfectly as well. <laughs> so It just doesn't sound as good when I say it. It sounds much better from you. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's just different accents, but um, so it's more of a matrilineal society and female cats will cooperate with each other quite a lot. They will help each other take care of their kittens. For example, they may help um, move the other cat's kittens. When one cat goes hunting, they may keep an eye on them and so on. So actually they cooperate with each other. And so for our own cat in our home, whether or not they're going to be sociable like that and very cooperative with other cats, or if they're going to prefer to be an individual cat, we think a lot of that depends on their early socialization. So for feral cats, growing up in a cat colony, as kittens, they're seeing other cats getting on with each other. They're seeing that other cats around that aren't related to them so they're getting socialized into this kind of social living whereas for cats in our own homes they're often not seeing other cats um, during that early period of their lives and so they're much more likely to prefer to be an only cat of course it depends very much on the cat there are lots of different things that go into it yeah there's another bit of research that i really love from the feral cat colonies that, that that then got tested on people in their homes and that's looking at the interactions between cats who get on with each other and you know when a cat walks towards you like your cat if you have a cat they walk towards you with their tail up with a little hook in the top that's called the tail up signal and it was noticed that cats in feral cat colonies would often greet each other like this um and there was some lovely research that tested that on on pet cats and found that, yes, the tail-up tail signal is used between pet cats as well. Um, and, of course, we see it when they come towards us, and it's a sign of affilia affiliation and friendly, friendly behavior. And I think that's a lovely, lovely signal from cats. That is lovely. I always think of it almost like a question mark kind of tail, yes. which is that little, <laughs> the little curve at the top. And so you you talk a lot about communication and ways to better understand our cats. And one part I thought was really fascinating is how few people actually understand cats' body language and what they're saying. And you have a study in there where I think, and you can correct me if, it, if I'm wrong, but I think it was like 13% of people were good at reading cats' body language, but the rest were not so good at it. And those that were better at it often were veterinary professionals or shelter workers. So they were around cats all the time. Like, why do you think it's such a challenge to understand our cats? And in what ways maybe can we enhance our understanding of them? Yeah, I thought that was so fascinating. And it, I mean, it is good news that the people who work with cats are better at reading cat body language because you would expect them to be and you would hope they would be. But really, it would be better if everyone had a better understanding. And I think to some extent, it's simply that a lot of people don't pay a lot of attention to cats. Um, and also, if you've grown up with cats around, you think you know about them. So you don't later in life necessarily pay that much attention so you're not really observing it and I think a lot of people still think that cats are inscrutable and that you can't tell what they're thinking um, but often you can and there are a lot of signs to look for and there was also another study um, which asked people to interact with cats and gave them instructions on how to interact with cats um, 
And people who thought they were good with cats weren't necessarily actually the best because they were less likely to follow the instructions. And the instructions involve giving the cat choice and control over the interaction. And often I think if people think that they're good with cats, then they're going to rush in and try to pet the cat and be friendly with the cat. And that may not be what the cat wants. And so, yeah, it's much, much better if people can read the cat's body language. And the classic situation in which that's an issue is when the cat rolls over and they show their tummy and so many people want to reach out and pet the cat on the tummy. And then they're like, why did the cat try to scratch me? Why did the cat try to bite me? Because they mistakenly think that the cat was inviting them to pet them on their tummy. Whereas it's probably better to say that the cat felt safe enough to show their tummy and was not expecting it to be touched at all because most cats don't like that. And I think that's one of those things where we would call it a social role, that particular behavior of rolling over like that. Um, but people completely misunderstand what the cat is trying to say with that behavior. Yes. Oh my gosh. I, I, I was probably maybe four, five, six, something like that. And I just remember my cousin's orange cat. I mean, it's just a really cool cat, but I hadn't been around a lot of cats at the time. And the cat was coming up towards me and looked really happy and then kind of rolled over on his side and showed his belly and not knowing, I just remember reaching for the belly and all of a sudden all four, four, claws were on on my my arm and I was like oh my god and just you know it was like that pain and then just like oh that cat's unpredictable cats are scary and now looking back I mean it makes so much sense but it, it is it's hard because sometimes we don't understand what they're saying and you have some really good points in there about some of the subtle communication cues that cats have like just little things like if they are feeling nervous about an interaction where their gaze may turn or even the direction of their head and, and which side of their head is of their face is turned towards you. Can you explain more about that? Cause I, I just love that part that you have in there. Yeah. And I think probably the most important thing to know is that cats don't like to be stared at. Um, and staring from a cat is kind of showing hostility, basically. It's showing that you want to increase the distance and, and not get close to them. So probably the most important thing to know is not to stare at your cat. Um, but one of the things that cats do do with other cats that they get on with is a slow blink. And I think a lot of people who work with cats get used to doing a slow blink when they meet a new cat just to kind of try and show that they're friendly to them. So a slow blink, it's its not just your eyelids coming down, it's your eyelids going up as well to kind of do the blink. And very often that is followed by a look away. So the slow blink and, the, and then a look away so that you're not staring at the cat. And um, scientists actually have tested that and they went and did that to a, a number of cats to see what would happen. And very often the cats will slow blink back. And I think this is something that a lot of people have experience for themselves as well. So if you know cats and you go and you do a slow blink, you're hoping to get a slow blink back because you're hoping that the cat will be saying, hey, yes, I'm friends with you, is kind of what they mean by it. So so that's, that's one of the things. And as for the staring, I think often when you have a room full of people and there's one person in the room who doesn't like cats, but the, that's the person that the cat goes to. It's often because all the other people like cats, so they're looking at the cat and the cat's thinking, oh, I don't like being looked at so much. So they go to the one who's not looking at them, which is unfortunately the one who doesn't particularly want to see them. Um, so if you know cats well, then you know not to stare at them. And that's very important. I, I like that you go into the idea of attachment and how cats' attachment to their humans is very similar to a child to a parent or a dog to their guardian. Can you explain more about that and how that 
that role is important for us to be aware of in terms of like how we we really can be our, our pet's safe base. Yes. And I think this is something we do need more research on in terms mm-hmm. of cats, because there is conflicting results from some of the studies. But some of the research does suggest that at least for some pet cats, they do form an attachment with their guardian. And this is something that comes from the human literature. And then it got tested with dogs first before anyone thought to actually try it with cats as well. And so we know for dogs, too, that their their human is their attachment figure. And that really shows that your role is as a caregiver. So one of the things that we say about attachment between human babies and their parents is that, or guardians, is that you are a safe haven for them um, as well. You're a safe haven that they can go out and explore from or return, and they come back to when, when they feel stressed as well. So I think it really emphasizes the role of not letting our pets, dog or cat, get too stressed and that it's our job to make sure that they are not stressed or if they are stressed that we give them a safe space or somewhere to hide for example and I think it's really neat to have seen this research come from research with children and for me especially it's been fascinating because my background is human psychology and, and when I was doing undergrad that was one of the things that I thought was so fascinating about the work that I did then so to see that have come through to be tested with dogs and then with cats it's really fascinating and um, it really it just highlights how important our role is as caring for them and I think with dogs especially it, there used to be a saying that you shouldn't try to comfort a fearful dog and we know from attachment theory, actually, that means that's totally wrong. It is exactly your job to comfort your fearful dog if they want comforting. Now, your cat probably doesn't want comforting. Your cat probably actually wants to run and hide. So we can say instead it's your job to have a safe space where they can run and hide and to let them hide if that's what they want to do. Absolutely. I, I love that part, too, where in the the one study that you had there, where it's a it you said about 60 to 65% of human infants have a secure attachment with their parent. And for cats, it's about 65% of cats have a secure attachment with their guardians. And I mean, that's, that's just so amazing to think like that they're, you know, those pretty equal like proportions for both of those. And why do you think that is? Like, do you think that's something that is just inborn? Do you think it's something that is created through the way that cats are raised or through the human relationship? And I I know that we're going to be talking soon about dogs as well, but I just find it so fascinating with even just how the insecure attachment with a person can actually lead to increased problems with like separation anxiety, for instance, with dogs. So yeah. Yeah. I thought that was fascinating, especially for the numbers to be so close from, you know, the cat study and the human study. And I would be speculating and trying to say why, so I don't know. But we know, for example, with human infants that those very early experiences are so, so important for human development. For example, when the baby cries and the person goes to soothe them and help them feel better, that's not just important in the moment, but it's important for the development of their um, their hormonal development of their stress system and so on for later in life. And so human babies that have those caring um, experiences, and we call it serve and return in the literature, it's often called serve and return as it like as an analogy to describe that the baby needs something and they get it. The baby needs something and they get it. And that helps them to grow up, to have a secure attachment. And also they have much, much better outcomes 
later in life. And there's some really lovely research from the Harvard Center for the Developing Child, and they have some videos that explain this on their website. And they're all about human babies. But I think it's really interesting to compare to relationships with puppies and kittens. I mean, it just emphasizes how important it is for us to take care of young animals of whatever species we happen to be living with and to give them those important early experiences. It's also so fascinating how this just relates so much to even our our relationships with other people. One of my favorite books that I started to read that was I, I was recommended to me was Attach. And it's all about the attachment system and some of the, the circle of security stuff that was started with infants that, you know, and it really impacts us. As you said, it, it starts when you're young, but it's like something that really impacts you throughout life. And I definitely noticed for myself that, that a lot of times, like, even though I had a secure attachment, um, sometimes I would date people that would have more of that avoidant attachment, or sometimes I, I would get people that would have that anxious attachment. And one thing in the the book that it, it talked about was how sometimes one of the best ways to help uh, another person who maybe has a more insecure attachment style where they don't feel as, as comfortable basically stating their needs or, or, or feeling that, that closest with people it can be to be in a relationship with a secure person. And I've, I've been thinking about that. And I know, as you said, there's so much more that needs to be done research-wise. But I've been thinking about that, like with our pets, how our own attachment style can impact them. And like with dogs with the, that are with people that have that insecure attachment style, how it can make them feel more anxious. So if that person is more avoidant, for instance, and isn't attending to their needs, they can feel more upset. And I think in the past, like with separation anxiety, it was always that thought of like the overly attentive person is the one that's going to cause that separation anxiety. But do you think that maybe there is some correlation for pets as well, that the more that they are in that, that secure relationship with that guardian who helps them to feel secure and safe, that they can have more of that secure attachment, even if they have a, a less secure attachment style in the first place? Yes. So there isn't enough research on it. It's something we need a lot more research on, but it certainly would absolutely make sense for that to be the case. Um, but I think if we look at how people interact with their pet, it's very important for them to be a safe, safe haven for their pets, you know, a secure base. Um, at the same time, also, it's really important that they not use aversive training methods. Um, so with cats, often it would be like if someone uses uh, a spray from a water bottle, for example, that would be something that potentially is going to damage your relationship with your cat. Um, whereas if you're using positive methods to train, um, maybe that will help improve your relationship, but certainly it's not going to damage it. Um, and I think using that kind of approach, it shows that actually you're not a safe haven. I think that's one of the reasons why aversive methods can be so damaging, because you're not a safe haven if you're sometimes going to turn around and do something really unpleasant and aversive to your cat, or even just, you know, make make a horrible noise, like shake a can to startle them, for example. Um, so I think that's something that can damage your relationship. And certainly we can look at that as, as seeing something that potentially could be damaging an attachment relationship, but we don't have enough research. It's something I really would love to see more research on that. Me too. Mm. So when you talked earlier about sense and how that's really important for our cats, I don't think that we even necessarily think about that. And maybe we may think of it in the way of certain scents may be overwhelming to cats, such as, you know, like strong citrus odors or certain air fresheners that are really strongly scented that can be aversive. But 
there are also those like pleasurable scents or scents that cats really pick up on. And you had some really great examples in the book that go beyond just catnip and some that actually are even more powerful perhaps for, for a greater majority of cats than catnip. Can you explain some about that? Yes. And I thought that was a really fun piece of research because as well as catnip, there are other plants that have similar effects, which are not so well known at all. And they include valerian, which is a herb, and they include silver vine, which you can get as a stick, but also you can get as a powder from a gall that attaches to the plant. And this is well known in Japan where it's called matatabi. I hope I pronounced that right. Um, and so these other scents, or another one is honeysuckle, Tatarian honeysuckle. Um, and then the wood from that can be very attractive to some cats. But the thing is, the response to catnip is genetic. So not all cats respond to catnip. Um, kittens don't have it anyway. They have to mature a bit in order to have that response. And then so scientists tested these other substances with cats. They put it in a sock um, so that they, they, when they were observing what happened, they, they themselves didn't know what exactly was in the sock. And then they tested how many cats respond. And so many, many cats do actually respond to silver vine. So if you have a cat who does not respond to catnip, but you want to find something that will have them rolling around like that, um, then silver vine is probably the first thing to try. Um, but some cats also really like Tatarian honeysuckle and some like valerian. And it seems to be very individual. So a cat that doesn't respond to catnip could respond to any of these others. A few cats might respond to all of them. Um, so it's something that you can just try and you can actually get testing kits now um, online and you can send off and you can get them delivered so you can try each of these different substances with your cat to see if they respond to it or not. And I think it's a really fun thing to do. It's a nice enriching thing to do. One of my cats absolutely loves silver vine. I mean, she likes catnip too, but she goes crazy over silver vine. <laughs> Just yesterday, actually, she was she was in here with me and I had a little sachet of extra silver vine powder left and she found it and she ripped the packet to shreds <laughs> and rolled around in the floor on it. She loves it very much. Um, my other cat is not particularly interested in any of them, actually. He's not interested in catnip. He does kind of sniff it and look like, well, maybe this is interesting, but he doesn't roll around on it or anything like that. And I think there will be a few other substances because subsequent to writing the book, I've seen a bit of research on a couple of other sub substances, one of them being lemongrass um, and another one being a plant that's related to indigo, I think it is. So I think there will be more research on this as well. And it's it's just such a lovely thing to do to try these with your cat and see what they like and what they respond to. And it doesn't do them any harm at all. So it's an effect. They might roll around on it. They rub their head on it. Um, they seem to be really excited. And then after a while, it just wears off. And then it won't have that effect for a little bit. But it doesn't do them any harm at all. It's not like, not like a drug or anything like that. It's just something that produces this response, which they seem to enjoy. So you talked about your cat liking to to tear that apart. And that was something you talked about in the book is how a lot of cats when they're playing, it's not just the aspect of having that toy. A lot of times it's it's being able to see that they are having some type of effect on the prey. Can you talk about that and how that might influence what types of toys our cats like or how they like to play? Yes. So when cats are playing, really their play is very, very like their hunting behavior. So they're using all of their predatory sequence 
And that means a couple of things. One of them, and this probably especially applies to older cats, is that the first part of that sequence is looking for prey and hunting. So if you've got a one toy and they're just watching very, very closely, that still is them engaging in play with the toy and and you're still seeing parts of their predatory sequence. But the other thing is that they like to catch the toy at the end. Now, we can't always let them actually catch the one toy. Sometimes we have to give them another toy. But it seems that cats actually like to be able to destroy it. They like it if the toy starts to fall apart, like if a feather falls out or something, because then it's more like if they caught actual prey. So it seems that they like toys that are not so sturdy and will begin to fall apart. And maybe also this is why they might like shredding, shredding the inside of a cardboard box or shredding bits of tissue paper, for example, because they get that experience of something falling apart. And if you imagine... It's a bit gruesome, but if you imagine that they've just caught a bird or they've just caught a mouse and they're playing with that, um, it is going to start falling apart. So it's more realistic for them if the toy that you've got for them does eventually at some point fall apart. So they might prefer that. But of course, you have to think about their safety too. So another thing that I've been paying attention to since reading your book is how a cat orients towards me. So whether their head is turned more towards the right or more towards the left. And I've even even been looking at this in certain videos with different cats. And it's so interesting how there's an emotional component to that. And I believe that there's an emotional component for us as people as well, depending upon which way we orient. Am I right on that? Yes, I think we do think that. And there's been some research on that with dogs as well, looking to see which side of you they're looking at. But I personally, when I'm interacting with them, I find that quite hard to notice. That's not something that I tend to pick up on. I'm I'm more looking at, are they coming up to me or, or not? So that's not something that I especially pay attention to, but that's that's just, just my bias in, in interacting with them. And I, I love it when cats come up to us and we give cats the choice of whether or not to come up to us or we call them to us instead of going and grabbing them. And actually with, with my cats, so one of my cats has meds twice a day, so I tell him he knows now that he's going to be picked up because I have to pick him up. I do pick him up for that to put him on the table to make it easier to do. He doesn't mind at all. But my other cat, she's not so keen. So I will say to her, cuddle. And then sometimes she will wait to be scooped up and have a little cuddle. And sometimes she'll be like, no way, she just runs off. (laughs) So I give her the choice in that. So I think that's the most important thing is just to give the cats a choice. Yeah, it's it's, it's so fascinating. And yeah, as you said, you know, so much of it, I think for me, just even in hindsight. So as I'm looking back on different training videos with cats or different times I'm interacting with them in the shelter and definitely like, and and this is something I've been paying attention to even with, with dogs more so, but I think it just reflects so much of like this emotional capacity of pets and how they, how, like you were talking about even like the tail up signal from other cats, how that can be a positive signal or how I believe it's when cats are having a positive emotion they are more oriented with their head to the right. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And then more of a negative with their head more towards the left. Yeah. And yeah, it's just so, so interesting. Or like for dogs where if they're feeling more positive about a person that's approaching or a situation, a lot of times they're maybe going to have more of a right wag tail basis where it's going to be going more to the right. Or if they're a little bit nervous or apprehensive, it might be going more to the left. And just these little like subtle differences in pets that really can make a big difference. And like the one with the dog's tail wags, how other dogs actually respond differently to other dogs based upon which way their tail is predominantly moving. It's just like, it's so fascinating. I I can't even, 
So I, I get excited about this, but I can't even imagine like for you as a researcher, like all of the stuff that's coming out now, like how does this feel for you? Like, and how has it changed through the years from when you first started in this field? I think it's so exciting. And really, I mean, I, I started writing my blog, Companion Animal Psychology, 11 years ago now. And the reason I started writing it was because I became aware of the explosion in research in canine science. And I just thought, this is fascinating. And um, what's changed more over that time, there's been more and more research on dogs, but also we've seen more and more research on cats. And I think cats still lag quite a way behind. I would love to see more research on cats, but I think it's so good that people are doing this because um, when I was a psychology student, no one was interested in dogs and cats. We thought everyone knew everything there was to know about them. They're just ordinary creatures that we have in our homes. What, what's of interest? You know, no one was interested. And I think from a scientific perspective, the thing that really got people interested in dogs was the research on pointing gestures. And when it was discovered simultaneous actually by two different scientific groups that dogs could understand when you pointed at something, they, they knew to follow that point. Um, and previously, that was something that only certain primates were thought to be able to do. So it was like, whoa, dogs can do this. And so from that, we've also seen a lot more research on cats. I think for cats, and it's actually quite nice, a lot of the research on cats has been more towards our interactions with them and how they are in the home. Not so much on the cognitive abilities of cats, although there is still some on the cognitive abilities of cats. And I think it's so interesting. And I think Ordinary people who have dogs and cats are really fascinated by it too. So that's just lovely that so many people are interested in this. And of course, so much of it is relevant to our everyday lives with dogs and cats. So there are so many things that we can pick up from this and that we can say, well, this means you should do this and it will go better. And people are interested to know. And I think that's just brilliant. I mean, it's good for the cat's welfare or dog's welfare. But also it's good for us because it means that we have a better relationship with them because we understand them better. So through your research and writing per, what is something that, that you found that maybe changed the way that you interact with your own cats or with, with different cats that you meet? I think one of the things I found that I was most interested in was the research on teaching cats to go in their carrier to go to the vet. So I've taught my own cats to go into the carrier. Like I used to do that a long time ago, but I did it kind of a bit half-heartedly. And it was only after I'd studied with Jean Donaldson at the Academy for Dog Trainers that I was like, okay, you have to follow a proper step-by-step -step plan and go through it properly, and then it will make a difference. Um, and so there was some research that looked at training cats. They trained one set of cats to go in the carrier and another set of cats they didn't train. And then this went on for, I think, six weeks, and then they they subjected them all to a mock vet exam. So they put them in the carrier, in the car, to a mock vet clinic and gave them basically a standard vet exam. And for the cats who have been trained to go in their carrier, it's not just that they go better in the carrier, but also the vet exam went better. So they were more able to actually finish the exam instead of having to give up because the cat was struggling too much or too aggressive or frightened or whatever. And... I thought that was just amazing because I had thought of that as being to do with getting the cat in the carrier and not having those moments when you get the carrier out and the cat is nowhere to be seen because they've gone running and they've hid under the bed and you're only going to get them out if you drag them out and you're probably going to get bitten in the process. And I think everyone with a cat has had that experience. I've had that when I was much younger. And now I find it makes such a difference to just have the carrier out all the time it's a place where the cat likes to go and hang out it's become one of those safe spaces 
And to know that it also makes the actual vet exam better is is just really nice. And of course, vets these days, they will leave your cat in the base of the carrier. So you've got this as a safe space for them and it's a safe space for them in the vet clinic too. And I think that's fantastic. And I've got a plan in the back of her that people can follow if they want to train their cat and teach them to go in their carrier. And it just makes such a big difference. And so many cats don't go to the vet or they don't go to the vet when they ought to, and a lot of time goes by first, just because people find it so difficult. So for me, I think that was one of the pieces of research that I found the most interesting and absolutely loved because it makes such a difference to cats. I also really like in there when you talk about training, so reward-based training to teach your, ta- your cat to go in the carrier, and you also look at cats that are frustrated and how reward-based training can help cats when they are experiencing that state of frustration, uh, a couple questions there, like what are some signs of frustration in a cat that someone can pay attention to? Cause I don't think that people always necessarily realize that their cats are feeling frustrated and how could they help their cat to feel less frustrated in, in ways that they interact with them, providing that training, or even you mentioned in the book that sometimes frustration can be caused by things that a cat can see, but they can't get to. So like a bird feeder or something like that. And, you know, and sometimes we can think of that as a positive that that could be enriching and, and valuable for the cat, but for some cats, that may be frustrating. So I know that's, that's a lot to kind of dive into, but I I would love to hear your thoughts on that, on frustrated cats. There was a really lovely piece of research that was done by the BCSPCA, which took cats who were frustrated in the shelter and gave them regular training sessions over a period of time. And these cats became much, much more content. Um, And they just used very simple reward-based training to do a trick. Um, And it really helped those cats. So in the shelter, um, the signs that these cats were frustrated, basically they wrecked everything in their cage. So they overturned their food bowls, they overturned their litter tray perhaps, their water bowl, they tipped things out, but also they were trying to get out all the time. So they might be pacing up and down or they might be sticking their paws through the bars and trying to get out. So your cat at home isn't stuck in a cage, but one of the signs they might be frustrated could, for example, if obviously if they're making that kind of mess and they're tipping their food bowl out, that's one of those signs. But also maybe they might be going for your ankles um, because they're frustrated and they want to play and you can make time to play with the one toy. And that's one of the things that you can do to help them. And also you can make their environment more enriching for them. So if they don't have all the things in their environment that they want, or need and we're back to the five pillars is a good place to start with that because that will help them um, and training is something that can help too because it gives them something to do it gives them a way to earn nice treats or a bit of brushing if you're using that instead as the reward and it uses their brain so it gives them something to do um, and I used to volunteer at shelters and at my local shelter and sometimes if you had a frustrated cat it would be hard to leave the room the cat wouldn't want you to go because then they would be bored <laughs> Um, And so they might come and ambush your legs as you tried to leave, for example. And these cats, they need a lot more from you. They need things to do. Um, And so with like a bird feeder outside, that sometimes for some cats could be frustrating because they want to get at the birds. But you can make up for that by providing a one toy, um, especially if you've got one that's got feathers on it, and just giving them those opportunities to play. So you're making up for, for what... Um, they want to do some cats might be frustrated because they see other cats going by and they don't like that and they want to be able to chase the other cat away Um, maybe just closing the blinds 
uh, might be one way so that they can't see the other cat going by or finding a way to not have that cat in your yard sometimes. Um, like if you have a high fence, maybe it's a bit easier. Um, but really, I mean, most cats aren't frustrated, but those ones that are, it's really a big deal for them and they really need a lot more input and a lot more things to do and to have fun. Basically, you can just go and have fun with your cat and that will help them to be less frustrated. I really like how you go into catios and how how that can actually improve welfare, even for cats that normally are indoor, outdoor cats and kind of free roam, that those cats that, that then have a catio, even they can have improvements in their welfare. Like, I thought that was really awesome. So can you explain more about like what catios are and why those can be so beneficial? And I liked your, your example, for instance, on the timesharing aspect of how cats may timeshare their space with other cats. Yes, so many of us have indoors only cats um, for good reason. Um, I think I don't have a strong opinion. I think everyone has to make the right opinion decision for their cat and their location for where they live as to whether or not it's safe for their cat to go outside. But one thing that we know is good for cats is if you actually have a catio, which is an enclosed outdoor space. It doesn't have to be particularly big. It could just be like an enclosed porch or something, and it's open to the air, and they can go outside, and they can see the world go by. They can smell all the scents on the air. Hopefully, you'll put some high-up spaces in it too, and it gives them a kind of safe space outside, so they're not at risk of being attacked by coyotes or cougars, for example. If you're worried about the birds, they also can't get the birds because they're safely enclosed within this space and there's been some research from the University of Lincoln which you just alluded to which found that having a catio is really really good for cats not just cats that are indoors only but also cats that previously had the space to go outside and roam because it was a safe space for them it's like it's their space and they could feel safe in that space that seems to be the reason why and so in places where there are a lot of cats and the cats are allowed to go outside, um, sometimes other cats don't like seeing like the neighbor's cat in the backyard. That can be quite stressful for them if they're not friends with them. Um, so one thing that we found out from research in the UK is that actually cats will timeshare. So we're in a place where lots of cats have outdoors access. They will pick a time to go outside and that's like their time to go outside and then they'll come in again and then the neighbor's cat will come by and through the yard and these times will be the same every day um, so that the cats are still all using the same space but they're making sure that they avoid each other and they're not seeing each other. So they're avoiding that stressful experience of having to meet another cat that they don't get on with. Uh, so fascinating. Zazie, do you have any other follow-up like suggestions or ideas for ways that people can use some of the new upcoming science of, of cat emotions, cat behavior in ways that can help to better their own cat's lives? Well, at the end of every chapter in the book, I've got a list of tips that people can use to apply the science at home. And at the very end of the book, I've got a checklist for a happy cat that people can use to see what they're already doing that they, you know, should keep on doing. They can give themselves a pass on the back for, but there will always be some things that people aren't doing yet. And so then they can decide what they want to try. And I think we briefly mentioned scent before, and we talked about some specific scents that cats might like. But I think one of the things is to be aware of the fact that cats actually do have amazing noses 
And one of the ideas I love, I actually got from Dr. Sarah Ellis, who's the author of The Trainable Cat. And it's this idea of a sensory box where you find things from outside, which is safe for your cat, and you put them in a box and you bring it in and you give your cat the choice of whether or not to interact with it. So you don't force your cat to get in the box. You don't pick them up and put them in it. You just see if they want to approach. And that gives them, for an indoors-only cat, that gives them some of those experiences of the smells from outside. And it can be very enriching for them. It's it's like the feline equivalent of taking your dog on a sniffari. And I think if more people were aware that cats actually have really good noses, then they would want to try that kind of thing. Well, thank you so much, Zazie. This was just such a pleasure. And I just can't wait to have you back already. Thank you. It's been really fun to chat with you. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for Happy Paws. We hope you continue tuning in every two weeks as we explore more about your pets. Make sure you subscribe to avoid missing out on any of our upcoming Happy Paws episodes. And if you enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you took a minute and left us a review. For more content like this and much more, visit us at fearfreehappyhomes.com. Our music is by 310. That's the number 3, the word 1, and the word O. Follow them on Instagram at 310official and listen to them on Spotify or wherever else you find your music.